I'm Kim Raycon, and I'd like to welcome you to this episode of Harper Academics podcast, Harper Academic Calling. Our podcast is designed to give educators and students, as well as every reader, a behind-the-scenes chat with a range of our authors, from well-loved favorites to up-and-coming debut writers, about their books. Harper Academic Calling, Sarah Perry. Sarah Perry, author of The Essex Serpent, joined us in the office for a special recording of Harper Academic Calling to talk about her latest novel, Melmoth. In Melmoth, Helen Franklin, 42, neither short nor tall, her hair neither dark nor fair, on her feet, boots which serve from November to March, and her mother's steel watch on her wrist is guilt-ridden. She exiles herself from Essex to Prague, where she finds work as a translator and learns the legend of Melmoth, a woman, or is she a scepter, damned to eternal loneliness. The novel is thematically about so much more. Guilt, culpability, and redemption, it challenges readers to bear witness to some of the most horrific crimes of the 20th and 21st centuries, and to examine the role of the ordinary and unremarkable in each. Our conversation with Sarah was recorded as part of HarperCollins' Facebook Live series broadcast from Book Studio 16. To watch the video, just search Facebook for Book Studio 16 and you'll find our episode. And if you've recently read Sarah's American debut, The Essex Serpent, you can search Harper Academic Collins' SoundCloud page for the episode we recorded with her in 2017. Melmoth is available now in hardcover and ebook from our imprint Custom House and is also available in digital audio from Harper Audio. Hello, Facebook, and welcome to our Book Studio 16. Today we are joined by Kim Raycon of the academic marketing team and author Sarah Perry, whose book Melmoth is on sale today. Um, Kim will be interviewing Sarah for our podcast, Harper Academic Calling. But if you have any questions for Sarah, definitely leave them in the comments. And if we have time at the end, we'll get to those. So Kim, take it away. Thanks, Michael. Sarah, thank you so much for agreeing to do this. Part of me is like very literary fangirling right now, and <laughs> there's part of me that is like, this is my job, so uh-huh. I kind of need to keep it to keep it together. But I am such a fan of you from um, the Essex Serpent, and I've actually I've already read After Me Comes the Flood oh, too, so I have okay. I do have knowledge of that, yeah. and certainly for Melmoth. And it was such a pleasure talking with you about a year ago. Um, for the Essex Serpent, and so I am like over the moon excited that you are here. Thank you for asking me back. Live and in person. (laughs) Um, So let's get started. Um, The first question that I have is actually a question from one of my former college professors Uh who has read both the Essex Serpent and has read Melmoth, and she's (laughs) wondering sort of about your inspiration for your title characters, because one of the things that she's super curious about, and then I think people who have read The Essex Serpent, people who will read Melmoth or have already read Melmoth, that you seem to sort of create characters who embody abstract concepts that are tied to strong emotions. So how do you get your inspiration for these title characters? That's very perceptive. Um, I'm She's often, a very perceptive <laughs> teacher. I can point. see. So I years ago, no, months ago, last year, I was interviewed uh, for the Radio 4 book club. Mm-hmm. And someone asked me about characterisation, not just the title characters, but uh, characters in the book. And a lady asked a question and said, 
where did Cora Seaborn come from, the lead character in The Essex Serpent? And completely without... So she said, you know, she's so alive, she's so real, I feel like I know her, I feel like I could see her. Where did she come from? And I just went, ah, it's a plot device. <laughs> and like this shocked gasp across the room... But I'm very unromantic about my characterization. Mm -hmm. It always springs from a desire to explore something mm -hmm. and to find a vehicle to explore those things. Mm -hmm. um, so with Melmoth, I knew that I wanted to write a female monster. Mm -hmm. I felt slightly aggrieved there hadn't been such a thing, but I, I needed to know who she was and what she did. Mm -hmm. um, and then I began to conceive of the idea of fiction having some kind of political or moral purpose. Because mm -hmm. I'm basically, I was born in 1850, <laughs> I have a Victorian sensibility. Um, and so Melmoth became a witness in yes. order for me to be able to explore those things. So mm -hmm. it's always the idea first, right down to the smallest characters, and then how, how you then make them live. So, you know, obviously I hope I pay attention to their psychology and their motivations and all the rest of it. But, uh, yeah, it's largely driven by a desire to explore things. Okay. Um, so I know what Melmoth is about, but for people who don't, what would you say Melmoth is about? Um, it is set in contemporary Prague mm -hmm. and a very lonely, guilt-ridden woman Here's about the legend of Melmoth the Witness, a woman who is damned to witness mankind at its worst, mm -hmm. and she is always watching you. And if you've done something really terrible, you sort of feel her watching, and she comes to you and she says, take my hand, I've been so lonely. Mm -hmm. um, and it's a legend, she reads all these manuscripts about her, and then eventually she starts to think that Melmoth is not a legend, that she is real, and that Melmoth has come for her. Mm -hmm. So that's the story, it's about guilt and culpability and redemption I guess so you know it's like a really light read <laughs> <laughs> totally cash yeah, just totally take it cash, out yeah. Yeah. Um, but it also owes a debt to, to a Victorian to an early Victorian yeah. novel um, so there's and it's a, there's a there are a nice set of jokes about this this 1820s Victorian novel um, so Charles Matterin's Melmoth the Wanderer, yeah. uh, published in 1820. Um, Charles Matterin was an was an Irish clergyman, <laughs> yeah. uh, not the happiest of, pe of people, happiest. right? Yeah. Um, but you owe a debt, and in fact, your Melmoth is dedicated to yeah. to Charles Matterin. Yeah. So, what about Matterin's text made you want to? revisit and sort of re-envision his, his story. The great thing about Melmoth the Wanderer, there's a number of great things about it, it is that it has its... I mean, <laughs> self-cannibalism, yeah. for example. Again, another very light read. Um, he... He wanted to have his cake and eat it. So he wanted to write a book that, in his own words, would out-Herod all the Herods. Mm -hmm. So his idea was that the novel would be like, by far the most distressing and violent and upsetting and depraved book that had ever been written. Um, but also, he wanted it to be politically important, mm -hmm. um, a satire. Mm -hmm. So you have this book that's fantastically complex about a man who sold his soul to the devil for an extra 150 years on Earth. Mm -hmm. So it's very different from my Melmoth, but still based kind of on the Wandering Jew legend, which mm -hmm. is a very ancient anti-Semitic legend in Europe. Um, 
And so it's, it's all of these things that's exciting and it has this fantastically sexy villain and, and all of this stuff happens and it's very complex, but it's also savagely political, very angry about mm-hmm. the state of the world, very angry about established religion. And I just remember reading and thinking, there you go, you can do both. Mm-hmm. And I think in contemporary culture, certainly in contemporary British culture, there's this rather spurious idea that you can either write a cracking yarn that's page-turning or you can write, you know, like serious literary fiction. And I just think, ah, do both, you know, you can try anyway didn't bother dickens didn't yeah, bother yeah, maturin exactly, it's not yeah. gonna bother me yeah so. and you owe a lot to the gothic as i don't want to say genre because you don't like to think of it as a genre so i so but but there's a but there's a distinction right between what sort of the gothic has become in popular culture and contemporary yeah. imagination versus sort of the gothic as as Matron means it in his in yeah. his novel um, and certainly how you use it. And we've talked about this before when we talked about the Essex Serpent last year. Um, but for those of you who might have missed it, um, what does the gothic mean to you? Um, I'm really taken by the idea of the gothic being a sensation rather than a genre mm-hmm. um, because it, you know a genre can really be defined almost by a series of motifs or stuff that you put in a book and then consequently it is that thing so you know if you're reading a crime novel likely to be a crime mm-hmm. <laughs> there's likely to be a victim and there'll be a detective probably of some kind sorting it out with the gothic you can't really do that you can't pick from the gothic list of motifs put them in a book or a story and accomplish the gothic so the example that I always use is if you read The Hound of the Baskervilles, you have a moor, an ancient curse, mm-hmm. a mysterious beast, mm-hmm. you have a, an escaped convict, all of this stuff. So it's, it's deeply of the Gothic idea. Mm-hmm. But Sherlock Holmes exists. Yeah. The very presence of Sherlock Holmes completely negates the Gothic. So you can kind of see it as being Gothic-esque, mm-hmm. but it's not really the Gothic. So the real Gothic is, if, is about the way you feel while you're reading it. And the reader should really be simultaneously seduced and repulsed yes you should be afraid and delighted Mm -hmm. at the same time and always very uneasily treading this this path um you know it's a bit like language changing with usage isn't it so there's lots of fiction and television that's that's called the gothic nowadays it doesn't really to my mind inhabit the gothic sensation but i understand why people call call it it gothic and you know i don't get too annoyed (laughs) (laughs) matterin says in his melmoth when he sort of tries to capture um, the gothic, he describes it as emotions are my events. And that's something that you really take to heart when you think about. Yeah, totally. So the amazing thing about Melmoth the Wanderer is that at some point in the book, in italics, it says emotions are my events. Mm -hmm. And that's really interesting because this is, you know, it's rape, cannibalism, Mm self-cannibalism, seduction, lightning storms, all of this stuff. And and what Maturin is saying, it's emotions that are the real events, and that is what is at the heart of the Gothic. The reader's emotions are the real point, and the reader should be so deeply engaged in the text that their emotions become like those of of the characters. Mm -hmm. Um, And so that's been a kind of guiding light for me in my writing, actually. So, like, constantly thinking about the emotions of the reader and, like, how to tug on them and how to use them and how to turn them upside down yeah because I have, I have to say when I the first time I, I read this I read your Melmoth I was largely sitting at my desk it was over the summer so I'm sitting there and I'm reading and I, I'm looking at the book I know what is on my desk they are immovable objects but <laughs> every time I sat down and would really get into this book 
I always would think that something out of my peripheral vision would move. Yeah. And I would look, and it's like, well, there's your computer monitor. That's not going yeah, anywhere. Yeah. Um, and so there was there was that element to it where you do have sort of this sector character who just kind of flits in and out and, you know, is the curtain moving um, because <laughs> yeah, it's just yeah. the curtain moving or, yeah, is it, or yeah. is it something else? So there is that element to it, too. But there's also sort of the metafictional structural parts of your book that really delighted me as a reader in, in how I like to in how I like to read and in what I like to read, but in also sort of thinking about how you're taking a narrative that is known and in many ways kind of making it your own. So um, you you kind of give um, even Matarin's Melmoth a bit of a pre-story um, in terms of the biblical legend that you mm. provide. Um, but there's a bibliography. Um, there are jokes about a novel that nobody reads, which is the Matarin book, which is true. Uh, not many <laughs> people, not many people have read it. Um, and the more that I sort of think about these elements, and there's sort of the, the vignettes too that come from um, like the Hoffman document and things yeah. like that. The more that I think about that, the more that I think about two particular moments in your novel that I'm drawn to, and they both talk about. Um, the stage, basically, yeah. um, and stagecraft and artifice. And one is towards the beginning when we see um, your main character, Helen Franklin, walking around Prague. It's two weeks after Christmas. Um, we get described the wintry scene. Um, and then you say, the, the omniscient narrator says, it is all a stage set contrived by ropes and pulleys. It is pleasant enough for an evening's self-deceit, but no more. And then later in the novel, when um, Thea is talking about the opera that everyone went to see to yeah. celebrate Albina's birthday, and Thea says, what I always love about the theater is looking for the artifice for who it is that pulls the strings. And I've been thinking about that, and I've been thinking about the structure of your book. And so was that... Was the structure that you chose for the story was that just was that just fun? Because I could see it as as being so much fun, sort of creating all of these different yeah, yeah. narrative pieces. Because you you are the person who was pulling yeah. those strings. Yeah, it was huge fun, and I I really enjoyed it. And and I'm quite impatient. And if you have a structure like this, then you can change your voice. Mm -hmm. You know, so you I've written a letter that's ostensibly written in 1637. Mm -hmm. Um, and I have a diary written by a girl in the 20s and then there's the narrator who has a very distinctive voice and all of these things are very different so I didn't have to put up with, you know, 100,000 words of the same tone. Um, but also I wanted to play with the idea of what in the book is real and what isn't mm -hmm. and that was the most, that gave me the most delight out of all of it. So um, I've invented a legend, mm -hmm. a biblical legend to explain my Melmoth mm -hmm. And said that that is what inspired Maturin. Mm -hmm. And lots of people think that my biblical legend is real. It's real. Inclu yeah. Including critics. So, mm -hmm. you know, I've fooled people, which is really great. Yeah. And then there's a list of sources and I've mixed up the real ones with fake ones. Mm -hmm. So I won't say which are real and which aren't, but there's uh, a novel by someone called Theodore Storm. And there is an unfinished Janacek opera mm -hmm. and there's various um, things along those lines and it's been really delightful to me to see that I've fooled quite a lot of people um, and this is all playing with the idea of is Melmoth real or not mm -hmm. because if I make people think 
by using all of these different sources and by bringing in my own with real ones, then everyone's wrong-footed all the time. Yeah. And they start to think, oh, God, I didn't know there was this ancient legend of a woman that denied Christ. Mm -hmm. And then the book takes on kind of more urgency and more reality than mm -hmm. if, I, if, you know, if she didn't have that backstory. And there, and there, are, and there are critics who use that exact that exact line and yeah, I'm just yeah. like wait a minute I don't think that was actually yeah yeah been, I mean there's been a, a review in a national paper yeah. it's like you know and she's you know she's resurrected an old myth yeah, <laughs> I was like, ah, ah, ah. yeah no I, I saw that and I was like oh okay. yeah. good Awkward. one good point yeah but, <laughs> yeah. but, but point point for, yeah point yeah for absolutely um and now there's there's something interesting too I think about um Helen Franklin and how she exists in this world because she has she has exiled herself to Prague we eventually find out why was it hard to write Helen or was it fairly easy to write her character I don't recall it being either easier or harder than any of the others really she mm -hmm. just I knew that I didn't want to write and it's I always want to challenge myself and not tread water and I'd written a very charismatic character Cora for the mm -hmm. Essex Serpent and I thought, well, that's quite easy, you know, create a character that everybody likes. Um, and, you know, she can say funny and interesting things and she can have interesting hobbies. And then that makes the characterization a relatively easy task. Mm -hmm. And it makes her easy to like and to believe. And then I thought, I'm going to go the opposite way and create someone very drab and very ordinary. And again, coming back to the idea of always beginning with the idea mm -hmm. and then building the character around it. I We've strayed into a kind of ontology where... We think that there are good people and bad people and the good yeah. people do good things and we're all good people so we don't need to worry about it and the bad people do bad things and fortunately we know we'll never do that. Mm -hmm. um, so it was really important to me that the book doesn't have any truck with that but that it's very ordinary, drab people like little dreary English women living in Prague perfectly capable of doing some stuff yeah which I won't <laughs> elaborate yeah. yeah but you know it would be really easy to write a book where um you know you have virtuous people who are charming and funny and attractive and they've got really good clothes and they do all the good stuff and then you have villainous wicked people who do all the bad stuff but actually a lot of people are really draw like really drab and really dull they're still capable of doing some serious things. What was it like for you to set a book in Prague? Because you you've you spent time there. Yeah. So your first two novels are set in and around Essex yeah. in England. Why was it significant for you to sort of make the geographical switch and, and what, Again, what draws you to Again, a sense it? of not wanting to keep writing the same book. So um, as a child of East Anglia, you know, I could close my eyes now and write you 10,000 words detailed description of an East Anglian beach mm -hmm. um, and it would be no effort at all because I know it so well it's in my DNA um, and if you keep writing over and over again about the marshlands and the flint churches that you're really familiar with I was worried there was a risk of seeming lazy and of mm -hmm. not driving myself on um, and I'd been thinking about Europe and I'd been thinking about the Eastern European Gothic architecture mm -hmm. and how that differed from English Gothic architecture mm -hmm. um, and then the opportunity came up to be the writer in residence in Prague for a couple of months and it seemed the perfect conflation of the two instincts. Mm -hmm. And there's also a lot of recent history in your yeah. book. And that sort of speaks back to, to this idea of sort of big ethical moments in world history yeah. and sort of deciding if we, if we know and sort of buy 
the relatively true story that history is written by the victors and who is the villain. Yeah. And, you know, in sort of big cataclysmic ways, it's easy to sort of spot villains. But if you sort of remove the idea of nation states from the equation and think about the individual, individual. level, it's much harder to discern because people are so ordinary and because they are so yeah. drab and because sometimes they're sins or faults or wrong acts are sort of I did my job yeah. or yeah, yeah. Sign I'm a little, some paperwork. Yeah, yeah, or I'm a little kid yeah. and I got jealous. Yeah. Things like that. Do those ethical quandaries are they easier to solve or are they easier to highlight in such a way? I mean they're not solved. Right. But I always think I I get asked quite a lot by readers and audience members things like what do I do now you know is it enough to bear and and it's a book of questions not answers Um, but one thing that I really wanted to do was to make sure that the book bore witness to stuff which has not been spoken about and does not have the currency Mm. of various other things so the Armenian genocide is obviously not formally recognised and I did um, so yeah so the book has narratives in the Armenian genocide at the end of the second world war in Prague and a couple of other things and I did Radio 4's front row the day before day before publication and the presenter just before we went live she said incidentally I can't say genocide the BBC cannot say Armenian genocide they have to say Armenian massacres because it's not formally recognised okay so she went live and she said and obviously this book deals with the Armenian massacres <laughs> and I went ah oh, the Armenian genocide <laughs> so you know it's still this is still something that is denied um, and then what very few people know is that the German-speaking Czechs, that the, the native, uh, the, the Sudeten Germans who lived in the Czech area, uh, were basically ethnically cleansed mm-hmm. out of Czechoslovakia at the end of the Second World War, and everybody knows in in the Czech Republic this is what happened. It's not really talked about all that much because it's very uneasy because we know who the villains were in the Second World War, mm-hmm. and it was the Germans. And do we really want to hear that they were rounded up into concentration camps and tortured in the streets, and entire houses full of people committed suicide rather than fall into the hands of the Czechs? That's really uncomfortable mm-hmm. because it inverts our idea. Again, going back to what you were saying earlier, of there being heroes and villains, and the heroes have halos, and the villains have horns, and we all know which ones we are. Reading this book, also, it struck me how often there is the injunction to look, and this idea of bearing witness is super important. And it made me think of, of three different things. One of them is part is part of is part of your book. But the first thing it made me think of is actually a line from one of Charles Madden's sermons. Talking about the Irish poor, yeah. he he asks his congregation. He says, "Are you not answerable for this?" Yeah. And it made me think about Walter Benjamin's uh, essay on the concept of history, um, where he writes, "There has never been a document of culture which is not sim- simultaneously one of barbarism." Yeah. And then from your novel in Carl's letter to Thea. Um, he says there is nobody watching there is only us and if there is only us we must do what Melmoth would do see what must be seen a bear witness to what must not be forgotten um, and that's the idea of bearing witness is a, is a very old one and a very important one if we think about what we're asked to do how that's a seemingly very active thing to do even if it seems like we're not doing a lot Um, So why was that so important to you? Why was the idea of bearing witness so important for you to do in this novel, to have that be sort of one of the driving themes? 
I so the day the Essex Serpent was published, mm-hmm. I can remember being at the book launch, and that was the day after the Orlando massacre, mm-hmm. or couple of days after mm-hmm. and round about that time isis was rampaging across the middle east and you were confronted on what seemed like an almost daily basis with men in orange jumpsuits about to be beheaded and the syrian refugee crisis was at its height and you know syrian toddlers were drowning in the mediterranean the boatload literally and i remember being on social media and being presented with these images and being so appalled that i would close them immediately and think and be quite angry that they'd intruded into my day mm-hmm. And I was so appalled by the state of the world that I wanted to give up writing because it seemed a bit like fiddling while Rome burned. Mm -hmm. So the only way I felt I could continue would be to write a book that counted, that that was a a moral response to what I saw around me. Mm -hmm. And I felt that my only role was a witness. And for many of us, that's all we can do. But as Primo Levi and many others would have said, that that is itself a moral good and an ob- a moral obligation, mm-hmm. actually. So by then, I knew that I was going to write a version of Melmoth and that she would be a woman. And that was about the time when I started to think that, yes, she needed to be a witness, um, because that was the only way I could feel that the book had some validity, I suppose, mm-hmm. beyond mere entertainment. Mm-hmm. And something that strikes me about... About her as uh, about Melmoth as a as a character as a figure, but also about what she does. Not so much her wandering, but I guess her loneliness, her the amount of stuff that she witnesses is how much emotional labor she's doing, and that really struck me because emotional labor is something that we don't really. <laughs> Most people don't think about it as labor. So that's a problem, um, I think. But she's doing a lot of work. And it's work that is creepy to some because you have this idea of somebody always watching. But it's, on a lot of levels, it's absolutely devastating. And for me as a reader, going back to this this novel um, time and time again, um, the more times I read it, the more I started to think about um, my response and my response is okay. I'm, I'm reading, in some ways, like a small ca- catalog of horrors, um, and how is that making me feel as as a person thinking about humanity, the yeah. state of the world? Um, and it reminded me of something that um, Jill Soloway said about the use of the female gaze in her show Transparent. Yep. She said that she wanted to make viewers not just um, see with her characters, she wanted her audiences to feel with them. So, yeah. so she, her phrase was to create uh, empathy as a political tool. Yeah, yeah. So how does emotional labor, and particularly the gothic, and how you how you see the gothic, how do those two things combine in Melmoth? Well, I think of the phrase emotional labor as being really rooted in feminism, mm-hmm. and about the idea that women do harder work than we see, because mm-hmm. so much of it is emotional work. Mm-hmm. Um, and this comes down to the construction of a female monster and what that means yeah. because it is not it's not enough to write a monster and happen to make their pronouns female pronouns mm-hmm. equally if you say to yourself i'm going to make her female then you stray into some kind of like crass gender essentialism and oh she's going to have female attributes you know that's not that's not sufficient for me so there's two things that are important about the the femaleness of melmoth mm-hmm. Firstly, the institutionary legend that I have made up (laughs) is that she was one of the company of women who saw the risen Christ and denied it Mm -hmm. and that this is her curse. But 
the women weren't believed, mm-hmm. as is often the case. Yeah. So her denial is because she knew she wasn't believed. And that may, I don't know, ring distant bells <laughs> for our audience yeah, about me. what happens to women who speak up at what they've seen. It so so like the nature of her curse is is based on her femaleness. Yeah. And then what does she have to do because of her curse? Bear the guilt and bear the shame for everybody else because mm-hmm. she's condemned to watch. So this is this is Melmoth as a woman. It's not about her appeal mm-hmm. or her hair or her robes. Those were all fun and you know those were great, but yeah. actually it's about the voices of women not being believed mm-hmm. and therefore all she can do is watch and the fact that all she's doing is watching has kind of given her this massive burden and yeah. then she offers respite to people yeah she does and and there's and and there's also too for me this this sort of this rage right because she when she comes when she comes to the various characters that she presents herself to there's this seemingly continual dismissal of her of her still and yeah. and that's kind of I guess a compounding of, of sort of this idea of, of ignoring or dismissing what a woman has to say yeah. which is also yeah. enraging I mean she's, I, I, it was really important to me that I created a monster that, that you could pity mm-hmm. I was always really thinking about Frankenstein mm-hmm. and about how the creature in Frankenstein is an innocent being yeah. so his you know if, if you were to look at it from, from like a Christian ontology perspective you know he's the only pure being aside from Christ that's ever been made because mm-hmm. he wasn't born in sin and what happens he is made monstrous and degraded by man's inhumanity to mm-hmm. him so the scene do you remember where he's outside the cottage and he's watching mm-hmm. this old man and his family and he's seeing the love between them and the nourishment between them and he and he can't believe it he can't believe that there could be intimacy and care it's absolutely heartbreaking mm-hmm. but he's also absolutely monstrous yeah, and by the end of it, utterly monstrous and horrifying. So, um, yeah, the idea of of creating a monster that, if you met, you'd be like, "You're really lonely," <laughs> and and but, and you really want me, but also no, <laughs> but, also, but also no, yeah, yeah. 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 Uh, Michael, how are we doing on time? Do people have questions? We're great. We are at three fifty nine right now. Okay. Um, Why Rusalka and not, for example, Parsifal, with its country character, who is very Melmothian, who I kept thinking of? Um, Because Rusalka is one of my favourite operas. (laughs) I saw it three times in Prague. And because um, I wanted a female, like, um, going back to the idea of, like, pulling strings and what's Mm -hmm. real and what's not real, I needed to have a female monster on stage. Um, And also... I mean, I t- someone asked me about Offenbach as well on the Tales of Hoffman. And, you know, it's, you have to kind of like be careful not to be too absolutely on the nose and not have them going to a production of Faust, for example, <laughs> because that's kind of... But yeah, basically, I love Rusalka. Right. Sometimes I'm a very simple woman. <laughs> <laughs> um, can you tell us anything about the cover? It's such a beautiful... It's amazing, isn't it? It's designed by Pete Dyer, who designed the cover for the Essex Serpent, and it's jackdaw feathers. So um, when I was in Prague and was like trying to come up with attributes for Melmoth, what, what would she be like? What was the texture of her? Um, I started feeding the jackdaws on Charles Bridge. And jackdaws have blue eyes, and they're, and they're very watchful. And researchers have found that jackdaws are the only birds that communicate by glance, mm-hmm. so they're incredibly intelligent. And I was in Prague for two months and they started to recognise me. And I've had this like confirmed by experts that corvids and jackdaws in particular 
know a soft touch when they see one. So they would see me coming and congregate at the end of Charles Bridge. So jackdaws accompany Melmoth. So yeah, they're jackdaw feathers. But I mean, it's great. I'm really lucky to have a genius designer, basically. And then why the Moldavite? Hoffman's Moldavite. Just love him. Just love him. I mean, that's great, yeah. isn't it? It is. You know, space a rock. meteor like, <laughs> struck a river basin, and like now you can buy Moldavite jewelry. It's amazing, yeah. and it's really, it's really interesting how they thought it was glass runoff because of you know the forest glass makers mm-hmm. and. One of the great things about being a novelist is that you can just be interested in stuff or have a favourite opera. Just chuck it in. Stick it in. And people always want to know some, like, really deep meaning. You're like, just like Moldavites. (laughs) Does anybody have any questions? Because I just have one more question. Nothing at the moment. Um, But to our viewers, if you guys have any questions for Sarah, get them in now before we sign off. Get them in now. Yeah, exactly. So my last question. I can't ask you the question that we ask everyone because I've already asked it to you a year ago. So... I'll ask you a new question for our return guests, which will be subjective for any other return guests in future. But if you had to choose five books to put in a course on Bearing Witness, <gasps> what would they be? Uh, okay. Uh, Primo Levi, If This Is a Man. Okay. One Day in the Life of Ivan Denisovich by Alexander Solzhenitsyn, which okay. I read when I was about 13 okay. and had a huge impact on me. Gillian Rose Loves Work. Okay. That is her memoir of having cancer, but it's also a memoir about desire and the Holocaust. And uh, the quote at the beginning of the book, Keep Your Mind Mm -hmm. and Helen Despair Not, is also from Gillian Rose. Bearing witness. I mean, obviously, my mind has gone completely blank. There's actually Hilary Mantel's memoir, Giving Up the Ghost, which okay. is about bearing witness of yourself mm-hmm. and like your own mm-hmm. kind of pains and sufferings. Mm-hmm. And actually, I think some diaries would be really yeah. interesting in there. Absolutely. Because because like the minutiae of life. So I'm really obsessed with Virginia Woolf's diaries mm. because her life was in some ways really small yeah. and really domestic. Mm-hmm. She was always getting in a snit with her servants. But it's still an, a, a, func- a, a nature of bearing witness to like a period of time. So if you were to study those five books, you would go from the vast mm-hmm. down to the absolutely specific and personal. But mm-hmm. they're all kind of forms of witnessing. Yeah, we have um, two volumes of Sylvia Plath's letters. And those yeah. are super interesting to yeah, see. Yeah. Like, today I ate ice cream. But, and it's <laughs> yeah, just like... Yeah. Oh, okay. Like yeah, Sylvia Plath ate yeah. ice cream. Like, yeah, why not? Yeah. It's hot. You eat some ice cream. But yeah, it is. In that minutia and sort of diary keeping and, you know, how we either make the mundane extraordinary later on or, yeah, yeah it's all it's all part of it. Yeah. Yeah. Anything? Uh, uh, we don't have any more questions. Just some hearts and thumbs up. Oh, thank you. Oh, hearts and thumbs up are wonderful. Um, but Sarah, thanks so much for being thank with us. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you very that much. Was great.